Hello and welcome to another episode of the When in Spain podcast. I'm your host, Paul Burge. Thank you for joining me wherever you're listening from around the world. In this episode, as I guess you probably gathered from the title, I'm going to take you for a little stroll along the entire length of Gran Vía, which is, well, I guess probably Madrid's grandest, widest, busiest street. Uh, not necessarily everybody's favourite, but uh, along the way we're going to be looking at some of the notable buildings and some of my thoughts about the street and recommendations of places to visit along Gran Vía uh, if you find yourself in Madrid. It's easy to write Gran Vía off as just simply a super commercial boulevard full of chain hotels, chain stores and shops, touristic restaurants, but actually if you scratch the surface and look at some of the architecture and some of the fascinating history and stories that lay behind the facades of many of the buildings along Gran Vía and some of its other monuments and landmarks, it actually does tell quite an interesting story of Madrid and indeed of Spain. So as I join you at the beginning of this episode, well, they say that the rain in Spain stays mostly on the plane. Not today. It is a cold, drizzly day here in Madrid, about 10 degrees Celsius. And of course, well, to be expected at this time of year, we are uh, in the middle of February. So this isn't going to just be a dry episode about the architecture of Gran Vía. Um, we're going to be looking at other things along the way. But just, on, but just a note on architecture... I think it's true to say that it's quite difficult to sum up Madrid with just one building, landmark or monument like you can with many other uh, cities. For example, Paris, you might think of the Eiffel Tower. London, you might think of Big Ben. Rome, you might think of the Colosseum. Um, but when it comes to Madrid, it's, uh, I think, falls into the category of capital cities or big cities in Europe where there isn't really one building that stands out as being kind of iconic or the, the building that you think of when you hear the word Madrid. Well, I think where I'm standing right now and the building I'm looking at right now could be a contender for potentially that iconic building. The kind that you might see on the front of a Madrid guidebook. And that is the Edificio Metropolis, the Metropolis building. And now this is that white building with the black dome wedged in the corner between the beginning of Gran Vía and Calle Alcalá. Three quarters of the way up the building it actually has the name in white letters Metropolis and it really is one of Madrid's landmarks particularly in this part of the city as you enter Gran Vía from Calle Alcalá and if you've been to Madrid you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I suppose it's uh, most notable for its splendidly decorated facade and its black dome adorned with what look like golden garlands, gold leaf which shine on a sunny day in Madrid. Not like, uh, not like today with the grey skies and drizzle. And right at the top of the building there is a statue called the Winged Victory, a black statue of the Winged Victory, which interestingly wasn't the original statue which adorned the Metropolis building. Uh, it was in the 1970s that the Union and Phoenix Insurance Company sparked a lot of controversy amongst uh, Madrileños when they removed the original statue, which was a symbol of a phoenix with Garimedes. So with the absence of the phoenix keenly felt, Metropolis commissioned 
Federico Coulot Valera, the son of legendary sculptor Lorenzo Coulot Valera, to create a winged victory. And that was installed in 1975. The winged victory statue with the wings outspread and the arms outspread too below the wings is what you see adorning the top of the Metropolis building. Today, I must say that this building looks absolutely spectacular at night. It's beautifully lit up at night. It probably actually looks better at night than it does during the day, but even so, during the day, um, it's, a, it's an impressive entrance to the beginning of uh, Gran Via, the, the bottom end of Gran Via uh, that, you, uh, that you join as you come off Calle Alcala. As I'm looking now, the road forks into two. We have Gran Via branching to the right and carrying straight on is Calle Alcala, which will eventually take you to Sol. We're going to follow Gran Via, which eventually will take us to the Plaza de España, which is where we'll end the podcast episode. So let's start walking. Now our next stop is another kind of architectural reference point I guess which again you immediately will recognize probably from any guidebook it stands just behind the Metropolis building and if I say the uh, watch brand Rolex many of you have been to Madrid will know exactly what I'm talking about just up on the left hand side behind the Metropolis building is the Edificio Grassi there's some similarities to, to the Metropolis building, and I believe this was done on purpose. So white circular building with, with balustrades and balconies. And uh, the most prominent feature, I suppose, is the large Rolex neon sign in green letters with the yellow Rolex crown above it, which is uh, glowing now as I speak to you as uh, dusk is starting to fall on Madrid. The building was created by Eladio Laredo, there's again another narrow strip of land nestled between Gran Via and Calle de Caballero. There go the buses. And the grassy building showcases, yeah, a distinct circular end tower, very reminiscent of its neighbour. And apparently this was a deliberate architectural choice by Laredo in order to establish a, a kind of visual connection between the two structures, which definitely is the case. They are kind of like almost twin structures. Uh, and you have this beautiful white colonnade, two-tier colonnade, which tops the building. Even though the building was completed in 1917, um, it actually became known as the Grassi Building semi-unofficially uh, in the 1950s. And that's because the renowned uh, jewellers, Grassi, became tenants of the building and occupied the ground floor of the building. And they're still there today. We see the uh, white Grassi uh, sign lit up, the windows all lit up, full of expensive watches and jewellery, more Rolexes and Rolex signs as well. But that's where the building now takes its name from, from the uh, Grassi jewellers who have occupied the building since the 1950s. And uh, there is a watch and clock museum which was uh, opened by Grassi in the basement of the, of the building and it features a collection of some 500 timepieces dating from the 16th to the 19th century. And it also includes a selection of clocks which once belonged to uh, a selection of European royalty. Above the windows around the uh, top part of the building, you have these archways which are filled in with this beautifully, looks like it's tiled or painted, I can't tell, gold, blue and red depicting some kind of scene but from down here on street level I can't quite make out uh, what it is and uh, there we go in the windows 
exquisite and fine watches. The rain seems to be getting heavier. The umbrellas are blooming as we walk up a drizzly Grand Vier. It's like a sort of scene from a Paris film noir. Neon lights and traffic lights reflecting in the slick roads and pavements. Tim Horton's Canadian Coffee House. They, by the way, if there are any Canadians listening, they have exploded onto the scene in Madrid. There are, I think, as many or more Tim Hortons now in Madrid than there are Starbucks. I've never been to one. Don't know if that's a good thing or not. The thing is, with Gran Vía, you will, you, as I said earlier, you will realise that it is home to a lot of uh, global chains. It isn't really the most uh, Spanish of shopping, eating, dining experiences in general. There are still a few small Spanish independent uh, businesses, restaurants, bars, etc. This is one of them that I'm stopping outside now, which is a little perfumeria, sheltering under its uh, blue awning. But uh, in general, has been uh, overtaken by, by the global brands, as you would expect. So you may be able to hear that rain hitting the, the awning above me. Um, just before we move on to our next uh, stop on Gran Vía, of course, as always, a little bit of a history about the street, because it does have uh, some interesting uh, history behind it. The first plans for Gran Vía were initially unveiled in the late 1800s and uh, really at the beginning they were very unpopular no one ever thought that this massive redevelopment reconstruction project in the center of madrid would ever really take off and the uh, initial start of the construction project was dogged by delays and funding problems and, and disputes with politicians and the city mayor at the time and the project was ridiculed and uh, sarcastically named Gran Vía, the Great Way. But uh, not in a way as you may imagine, uh, actually in a sarcastic way. People didn't think it was going to be a great project by any means at all. But then finally in 1904, the project was approved and construction started on the first phase of the street in 1910. And the first phase of Gran Vía was originally called Calle del Conde de Peñalver. The second phase of Gran Vía started in 1917. And that was named after Francisco P. E. Margal, who was a uh, prominent but deceased politician. And then the third phase of Gran Vía didn't actually start until 1925. And originally that part was called Calle Eduardo, Dato Iradier, uh, another prominent politician of that time. And if you look at Gran Vía on a map, and certainly if you walk it, as I'm doing today, you do get a feeling of it being three distinct legs as you walk up. And uh, the street makes little turns to the left and then the right. But of course, the architects of the day were really excited about the street's approval because really for the first time it gave them the opportunity to create large and grand buildings which followed the fashions of the architectural styles of the day and really I suppose you could say 
even today that uh, Gran Vía is home to some of the most eye-catching architectural examples that you will find anywhere in Madrid. And Madrid's urban planners really saw it as uh, a real sign of modernity for Madrid. This expansive boulevard which would connect Calle Alcalá, Madrid's now longest street, with the uh, Plaza de España, kind of in a similar way to uh, Georges Eugène Haussmann did uh, in Paris, creating these huge boulevards slicing through the existing streets and houses, although I think he did it as a way of being able to control the population of Paris to prevent any future revolutions. I don't think the, uh, the plan was the same here in Madrid, but all the same, a grand project that was designed to put Madrid on the map as a modern, forward-thinking European capital. Um, in its wake, thousands of houses were destroyed and hundreds and hundreds of streets as well, uh, which earned the project the name of an axe blow on the map of Madrid, which again, if you look at it, kind of is. You can uh, just see just how prominent the street is compared to the rest of the little Warren maze of streets in Madrid, which is one thing I love about the centre of Madrid, which is part of its charm, is the maze, labyrinthine uh, mix of streets that you have. Well, the rain is easing off a bit now. I will talk a little bit more about some name changes that Granvia underwent owing to the Civil War. It's quite interesting, but the sky is beginning to brighten slightly and uh, the rain has eased off. I'm going to walk up to my next stop, which really isn't far. We're really still in the, the first phase of Gran Vía, the first leg of those three parts of the street over the road there. Honest Greens, this is a, a new, uh, fairly new, within the last five years or so, chain, which you'll find really all over Madrid. And it's kind of a, a healthy, fast food restaurant, I suppose. Lots of wholesome salads and grilled fish and chicken, which you can get to take away or eat in. Would be one of my recommendations in Madrid, if you're looking for something that isn't Spanish, isn't fried, and is fairly healthy, I would uh, definitely recommend Honest Greens. Okay, so next stop, I'm already here. You will notice that Granvia is just a sea of white taxi cabs with their red stripes and their green lights and blue Madrid buses. Uh, there isn't much local traffic allowed to drive up uh, Granvia these days. So next stop, a bar which will be celebrating its 93rd anniversary this year. This place was founded in 1931. Unmistakable with its red neon lights. Museo Chicote. Originally known as Bar Chicote, well this was the first cocktail bar in Madrid. Probably the first cocktail bar in Spain. Today known as the Chicote Museum, it's not a museum, it is a bar where you could order a fantastic cocktail at number 12 Gran Vía. Opened in 1931 by Pedro Chicote. He was the barman of the Ritz Hotel and he decided he wanted to open his own 
cocktail bar after applying his uh, mixology skills at the Ritz Hotel. Became known as the Chicote Museum in 1940, interestingly because of the collection of spirits and alcohol that he had accumulated over the years. In the basement, apparently he had something like 20,000 different types of bottles of liquor. And at the time was considered to be one of the best collections in the world. So much so that Aristotle Onassis offered Chicote 30 million pesetas for the collection. Now many famous a person has uh, sipped a cocktail at the bar in here. The likes of Ava Gardner, Frank Sinatra, Audrey Hepburn. And there are photos of all of these in there with Chicote sipping their cocktails. John Wayne, Ernest Hemingway, of course, who uh, got Chicote to invent him uh, his own cocktail. Salvador Dali and Alexander Fleming, to name but a few. I'm just peeking in the door now. Red walls full of black and white photos of all the famous people who have come and drank cocktails in here before. This beautiful Art Deco metal revolving door. And then really subtly lit dark red booths with little cosy table lamps each table individually lit by its little little table lamp and uh, yeah there are quite a few people in there at the moment a waiter pouring something into somebody's glass wearing a crisp white jacket a very cosy place to be on a drizzly day like today but i'm not going to stop for a cocktail i'm going to push on up Gran Via because we've got quite a lot to see and lo and behold the sun is starting to break through the clouds beautifully lighting up the Edificio Telefonica the Telefonica building with its clock illuminated in blue neon again this is a classic landmark of Gran Via and I guess Madrid too It's actually now turned into a beautifully dramatic scene as I walk up Gran Via with this very dramatic sky of fast-moving clouds. Right on the horizon, the sky is blue. But where we are, we've got these grey, threatening skies, but it's, got this, it's created this very dramatic light this evening on Gran Via. Not many people about really at the moment. I think that's because of the rain and also, well, it's about uh, 6pm on a Friday. Granvia tends to get much busier, much later on, like most places in Madrid. As I've mentioned millions of times before on this podcast, Spanish people go out late. They go out late to eat. And if you're young and into partying, well, you won't go out to bars until probably 10 or 11 o'clock and you won't go to a, a disco or a nightclub until maybe two or three and then you'll stay there until maybe 6 a.m so if you're wondering why places are quiet early that's why because spaniards like to go out late um, however gran Villa is full of hotels so you're going to get a lot of tourists in this area and of indeed in the center of madrid so it may not feel too empty to you heading past one of Madrid's casinos this is the Casino Gran Via 
very uh, beautiful inside. I've been there once or twice, I think, where my wife Karina flukely won about 300 euros from a free token she was given on en- on entering on a uh, on one of the machines in there. We're now at the intersection where Granvia meets the infamous Calle de la Montera. <laughs> I don't say infamous. I don't know if it is anymore. This street for years and years and years was renowned for its uh, nighttime prostitution. Very much in your face. Considering your slap bang in the centre of a European capital city and you can walk you could walk down here at 10, 11 o'clock at night and this is a main shopping street with bars and restaurants and there will be very obvious presence of, of prostitutes in the street which uh, was something that kind of very much surprised me when I first moved here I think that's changed a bit now they uh, have there's more of an increased police presence on the street and I think they've tried to do something to to solve that I uh, don't quite know how I guess they've just moved it on to somewhere else less central but um, so Calle Montera where it joins Gran Via at the moment I'm standing right outside the Gran Via metro station entrance and this is a kind of again a kind of art deco art pardon he just walked into a guy carrying his little baby art deco style granite columns and this big metal and glass canopy which uh, extends out over the entrance to the metro here and uh, actually this is the lift entrance now this was up until a couple of years ago completely um, just a modern entrance and this entrance that they recreated um, harks back to the entrance which was originally here I think and built in 1919 so the station was originally opened in 1919 it's one of the original eight metro lines in Madrid. So apparently up until 1972, the entrance here housed some, uh, some elaborate elevators to take people down to the platforms, and they, for which they uh, paid a small fee. And this was uh, built by the architect Antonio Palacios, and it was dismantled in 1972, and as I said, turned into a kind of modern metro entrance with steps and escalators. With the complete remodeling, refurbishment, I should say, of the Granvia station, which started, I think, in 2018, they decided to reinstall the old-style entrance here. So they've effectively built a replica in uh, granite with the glass and metal canopy in a kind of Art Deco style, uh, which is a vast improvement to go back to the original uh, design. And uh, today it has a uh, lift as well much more modern of course when they carried out this refurbishment which started in 2018 they decided to build a tunnel all the way under i think here calle montera i don't think i've ever used it which connects the station to the station at sol the refurbishment of this station was just dogged by delays and delays and for me my memory of granvia station almost ever since i moved to madrid was it was just always closed granvia station was just always closed the trains used to sort of chug through it and it was all dark. All of the entrances on, on here on Granvia were sealed off. So I think it was closed for something like four of my first six years here, <laughs> something like that. Um, I think COVID played a part. Also, they discovered, I think, some uh, 
archaeological remains of interest. Um, there were some structural problems where I think they were worried that the tunnels were going to collapse or something like that. But anyway, it took years and years to get the, the station back open. And then we have right next door McDonald's. <laughs> Probably got quite a grand entrance to McDonald's. Now opposite, we've got the Telefonica building, which is glowing a beautiful golden yellow, the top half is anyway, in this uh, sun which has suddenly come out. I'm actually very pleased because when I decided to record this podcast today, I knew it was going to be pouring with rain, but I thought, what the hell, I'm going to do it anyway. But I'm very pleased to say that the sun is coming out and it's just catching the tops of all of the buildings along the uh, right-hand side of Grambier as look at it, including the uh, Edificio Telefonica. Now, this building has some uh, quite interesting history behind it. It was uh, completed in March 1929 and the project was run by uh, Telefonica's chief architect, Luis Ignacio de Cárdenas, impressively constructed in just three years. And he drew his inspiration from the American skyscrapers of New York and Chicago. And, you know, when you look at it, you, you, you can kind of see uh, the influence, I guess. And he got inspiration from the, uh, the, uh, the premises, apparently, this is interesting, of the uh, International Telephone and Telegraph, ITT, which was the uh, US corporation uh, involved in the creation of the Telefonica company itself uh, in 1924. And before the building was even completed, um, King Alfonso XIII apparently made the first trans-oceanic telephone call conversing in 1928 with the President of the United States who at that time was Calvin Coolidge who uh, was at uh, Washington's Chamber of Commerce so there you go, the first transatlantic phone call was made from this building, well the first transatlantic phone call from Spain was made from this building, I don't know if that was the first one from Europe to the uh, United States but it became one of Madrid's most celebrated buildings at the time, it was a an object of national pride, 90 metres high, a very recognisable feature of Madrid's skyline, and uh, really recognised as Europe's first skyscraper. It feels funny calling it a skyscraper today when you look at it, but I guess at the time it was uh, one of the tallest buildings in Europe at the uh, beginning of the 1930s, and certainly helped to give Madrid this modern and uh, cosmopolitan feel that it seemed to so much crave at the time. Really do get the sense that Madrid was stamping its feet saying, hey, we want to be recognised as a modern and progressive as well. Little did people know what was to, what was to come. Apparently it accommodated uh, 1,800 employees, the bulk of whom were telephone operators, majority of whom were women, which at that time again was uh, quite unusual and helped give uh, Telefonica, uh, you know, a kind of modern image employing so many young, young women in the 1930s. But one of the most important interesting uh, chapters in the building's history was uh, when it was used as an observatory by the, uh, by the uh, Republican forces to keep an eye on the whereabouts of the Francoist troops. Um, at the start of the siege of Madrid in the uh, Spanish Civil War. Telefonica was a uh, priority objective as much for the height of the building as its proximity to the front line during the Civil War. 
and of course as being one of the nation's most important communication centres. Apparently it's basements. We used as air raid shelters and the, uh, the building was hit numerous times by numerous bombs and shells. But here it is still standing today. And uh, the government uh, installed the press censorship office in the building. And all the international connections were made from here and all the foreign correspondents used to transmit their copy around the world from right here, including writers such as John Dos Passos, Ernest Hemingway, and the author of The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, all broadcasting their reports uh, right from here. It's a very kind of brutalist, bold uh, facade with not much relief. There's a large crest or coat of arms in this kind of sandstone colour uh, below the clock, um, which is, uh, the clock is very kind of recognisable, I suppose. It's always lit up. You see it from all around Madrid at night. It's now lit in a blue neon colour. It used to be red. I can't remember when it changed, but it used to be red. But uh, in keeping with the branding of Telefonica, they decided to change the clock to the uh, blue neon colour. And today it's this kind of a, of a museum and um, events that take place in the auditorium on the ground floor. I'm not sure what the rest of the building is used for these days. Uh, you can walk into the main auditorium. And this seems like an apt moment, uh, talking about the Spanish Civil War, to talk about some of the name changes, quite curious name changes, that Granvia underwent during the Civil War and uh, afterwards. Uh, some three months before the Spanish Civil War began, the, uh, the Second Spanish Republic changed some of the street names uh, around Madrid uh, under the influence of the left. And, um, well, for Gran Via, the first two stretches of the street were called Avenida de la CNT. Uh, CNT is the Confederación Nacional de Trabajo, I believe, the Confederation of National Workers. Um, and this was a collection, a confederation of different trade unions and class unions and that kind of thing. Uh, when the civil war started, the avenue was renamed Avenida de Rusia, Russia Avenue, due to the, the support the country had shown for the Spanish Republic. And then soon after that, uh, the name was changed to Avenida de la Unión Soviética, the Soviet Union Avenue. But I think my favourite name that was given to Gran Vía, and this was sort of not official at all, it was a, a nickname that was used to describe the street, it was the Avenida de los Abuses, Howitzer Avenue, named so because of the continued bombardments by the nationalist forces loyal to Franco. And the reason for these attacks in this area, um, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, was that the Edificio de Telefónica, uh, owing to its height, served as a reference point for aircraft during the shellings. Uh, just after the end of the Civil War, when the rebels entered Madrid, they renamed the road Avenida de José Antonio after one of their uh, greatest political figures and founder of the uh, Falangist Fascist Party. But it wasn't until as late as 1981, when Spain had officially transitioned to democracy, that the then socialist mayor restored the name of the street back to, quite simply, Gran Vía, or Great Way.
it's getting a waft of warm, fumey kind of air that you get that escapes from this subway or the metro entrances. Well, it's actually turned out nice. You've got that lovely late winter sunshine reflecting on the pavements, on the wet pavements now. My recommendation if you're strolling along uh, Granvia and you're thinking of maybe getting a, something to eat, a snack, a drink, a canya, a coffee, is to branch off down one of the, one of the numerous side streets. On the left-hand side, as you walk up, you're going to be taken down to the area between Granvier and Sol, where you'll find some little, probably more authentic, I would say, bars and cafes. And then on the right-hand side, you're, uh, if you take any of the little side streets, they're going to take you up into either the Chueca neighbourhood or Malasagna, which is much more interesting. I wouldn't recommend eating or drinking on Granvier, apart from if you want a cocktail in Chicote. I would head up into, into the, the depths of Malasagna, personally, and go and find some cool places up there. Um, but that's for another podcast, I think. The street's feeling uh, quite a bit busier up at this, uh, this part of Granvia. We've got more shops up here now. H&M, Starbucks over the road, Mango, Pull&Bear. A lot of Spanish brands. Zara, which I'm sure we all know. One of my favourite shops on Granbia. There goes an ambulance. One of my favourite shops on Granbia has to be the Casa del Libro, which is, uh, I think, probably the largest uh, bookstore in Madrid, or at least in the centre of Madrid that I know of. Um, recently refurbished. It's about three or four floors. So if you're here for books or you want to get your hands on Spanish literature, it's a good place to go. It's also a nice place I always like, and I think I've said this before in other episodes. If you want to just escape the crowds and the noise and the hustle and bustle and get a, collect your thoughts for half an hour and get a bit of peace and quiet, ducking into a bookstore is always a good idea, but I would definitely recommend, uh, recommend Casa del Libro. Also quite useful if you're looking for some uh, books and gifts to take back home from Madrid. Right opposite Casa del Libro, the house of books, is, uh, well, Primark, the super discount clothes retailer. In this beautifully elegant white building, I think this is the largest building on Gran Vier, it uh, occupies an entire block. In the windows on, I don't know, the second or third floor, we have the uh, neon blue lights in each window the letter marking out the name Primark always heaving with people there's always a sea of people outside the entrance I'm not interested in Primark particularly but I'm interested in the history of the building so this is uh, Granvia number 32 it's also known as the Madrid Paris building incidentally works began on it in 1921 and were completed in 1924 when the Paris Madrid department store was inaugurated by kings Victoria Eugenia and Alfonso XIII, Alfonso XIII. It was originally an old style department store. It was uh, remodeled in 1956 
when the uh, architect Fernando Canobas made some uh, changes adding two more floors which you can kind of see when you look at the building you can see where the extra floors were added and then crowning the building with the sculpture of the phoenix which I'm looking up at now with a wing spread and an arm well I can see a hand raised aloft towards the sky a number of media groups I think uh, inhabited the building in the 1980s one famous famously uh, the Prisa media group which uh, still exists today and then it was sold off again to various banking groups it was uh, kind of mothballed for many years I think when I first moved to Madrid I can't remember what was here but I don't remember being there being any kind of commercial premises here the interesting thing is it was renovated I think in about 2015 2016 when Primark decided to buy the building. If you walk in there today, yes, it's a discount clothing shop, but it's probably one of the grandest Primarks I've ever seen. And when you walk in, you still have this huge atrium and each floor has these kind of balconies and you really get a sense of what it would have looked like when it was the Almacenes Madrid Paris back in the 20s and 30s. It's incredibly grand. Go and just poke your head in, ride the escalator up, and get into the centre of the, of the building, and you'll really get a sense of just how glamorous the department store would have been. So we've got a lot of hotels on Gran Via, as I mentioned here. I can see Hotel Atlantico, we've got Hotel Hyatt Gran Via, we've got a Pestania Hotel. Oh, the street lamps have all just flicked on, all at the same time. When I first came to Madrid, I remember Gran Via being kind of choked with a lot more traffic and uh, a lot more difficult to negotiate the sidewalks or the pavements. I can't remember exactly when it was, I think it was in about 2018, they decided to uh, reduce the width of the actual uh, street, the road or the lanes of traffic from about six or eight down to I think just four now. Uh, which people complained about bizarrely but they uh, widened the pavements massively which makes much more sense considering how many shops and just how busy it gets particularly at Christmas time because I remember what they used to do is they used to temporarily expand the pavements with these kind of wooden boards and metal barriers <laughs> only at Christmas time to cope with the uh, hordes of people doing their Christmas uh, shopping uh, just for around a month during Christmas time and then they'd remove them again and then they realised actually it's just better to have permanently widened uh, pavements and reduce a lot of the traffic and so now uh, I think it's just taxis and buses that you'll see on Gran Via not, not, not regular traffic um, and I think obviously you know for deliveries and things like that it's much more manageable today than it used to be you know, we've got a very large Zara clothes store uh, probably one of the bigger ones in Madrid. Although I think the biggest one now in Spain is on uh, Plaza de España. So we're now just uh, approaching Plaza de Callao, Callao Square. This is another metro stop. Anyone who's been to Madrid will know it for, I'd guess, two kind of landmark buildings. One is the Cines de Callao, which is the uh, which is a cinema, a movie theatre. It's getting a lot busier now here. There are a lot of people waiting at bus stops. I guess Friday there are people finishing work. Although uh, in Spain, many people who 
working offices do finish early on a Friday. They usually finish around uh, 3 p.m. They might go home and have a little siesta maybe on a Friday, possibly, and then go out and hit the shops. I think there are a lot more people now who've just emerged from either their homes or their work or a long lunch to start doing a little bit of evening shopping before their weekend begins. Burger King, Yao Yao, this is frozen yogurt. Uniqlo, this is a clothing store. We're just getting down to the metro entrance to Kayao. Up and down Gran Via, you'll find these kind of little kiosk places on the pavement that's selling all sorts of tourist tea rubbish. <laughs> well, we're all guilty of buying it, I guess. Magnets, bracelets, Madrid postcards. And you duck underneath, and you've got sunglasses and bottles of water, chewing gum, tobacco, a radio going. Keyrings. A group of guys all standing together having their photo taken by their friend in front of the Callao metro station stop. They're Spanish, but probably not from Madrid. Five Guys Burger Restaurant. That's another chain which has exploded across Madrid in, in recent years. Got a group of friends shouting to their friend to hurry up and get in a taxi there. This is the sound of the uh, traffic crossing, the weird siren sound you can hear. So now, just walking into Plaza Callao, the sun is really beginning to set now, got a lovely kind of giving a nice cosy feel to the chilly streets, this kind of golden red sky, which perfectly complements all of the neon and bright lights here in the Plaza Callao. Talking of bright lights, there goes a uh, police car. Just wait for that to go. And as if by magic, suddenly there seem to be hundreds of people thronging the pavements of Callao. So I'm standing directly opposite one of the most probably famous and most photographed sites on Gran Via. And it sits atop the Edificio Carrion, or otherwise known as the Edificio Capitol. And that is the neon sign of Schweppes, which I believe is Swiss. It's a Swiss carbonated drinks manufacturer, probably best known for its tonic water that you put in your gin. And it's made up of a series of neon, different coloured neon bars in pink green, blue, which kind of alternate lighting up going backwards and forwards and then the Schweppes written in uh, white and yellow letters. And there it is. Good time to see it now, now that it's just getting dark. And the, uh, yeah, this is a, this is a very iconic uh, neon sign and uh, like a proper old school neon sign that you don't see too many of these days. And that Schweppes neon sign has been there since 1972. Um, it's made up of 312 neon bars. 
It's 11 meters high. It doesn't look like it would be from down here, but I guess when you stood up close to it, it's 11 meters high. Apparently weighs 100 kilos. It does actually feature in a uh, climactic sequence of Alex de la Iglesia's 1995 horror comedy, The Day of the Beast. I love it. It's something that I photographed numerous times. And um, I think it's kind of become more than just an advertisement for Schweppes. It's sort of become part of the sort of, you know, the city's collective imagination. A bit like the uh, Tio Pepe neon sign that we uh, know and love that sits above the uh, Puerta del Sol. The building itself, uh, the uh, Edificio Carrion, is a part of the uh, rationalist architecture style in Spain. 54 meters high. Just across from it, I'm looking at the Fines Callao, which is uh, lit up in uh, red neon lights, adorned by two giant, kind of like uh, TV screens, advertising films, and uh, the cinema was uh, designed by Luis Gutierrez Soto. And it's got this kind of beautiful art deco facade, kind of cream and burgundy with this repeated uh, pattern. And uh, apparently it hosted Spain's first screening of a spoken word film. Well, basically a, a synchronized speech film, a film which wasn't subtitled with someone playing the piano uh, as an accompaniment. Quite often you'll be uh, walking through Callao Square and uh, there'll be sort of red carpets out and there'll be a film crew and a stage and there'll be some kind of uh, premiere going on. Quite often it's the, the site of uh, Spain's, or at least for Spanish films, Spanish cinema uh, premieres. I've seen uh, Penelope Cruz there uh, a couple of times over the years. So uh, you might spot a celeb or two if you get lucky. Opposite Callao Square is the Palacio de la Prensa, the uh, Palace of the Press. In letters above the columned entrance, it says Asociación de la Prensa, the Press Association. And I think today it still is home to the Spanish Press Association. If you need to get accredited as a member of the press for any kind of event or you need to get a press card, I believe their offices is still up there somewhere. Uh, however, I think it's uh, home to all sorts of different things now, including a hostel, imaginatively named the Hostel. De la Prensa it was actually commissioned by the uh, Madrid Press Association uh, to serve as a cooperative headquarters. Uh, the first designs were sketched out in 1924 and it was intended to be mixed use of commercial apartments, uh, a movie theatre, which there is today uh, there indeed, a movie theatre, the two ticket windows uh, at street level, the uh, taquilla as they're called in Spanish, the taquilla. The building was officially inaugurated in April uh, 1930, uh, but after mortgaging the building because of huge debts accumulated during the Francoist dictatorship, the uh, Madrid Press Association decided to move its headquarters to a smaller palace uh, in the Salamanca neighborhood uh, for free. So below we've got another Starbucks, a pizza place, you know, none of these places, none of the eateries or none of these eateries along Gran Vía are particularly interesting. You're going to find these in any city around the world, I suppose. So I'm just crossing over now 
suppose what we're now crossing into what would have been the third and final stretch of Granvia to be completed. Now on this part of Granvia, on this section of Granvia, which runs all the way down to the uh, Plaza de España, you'll notice, um, and I think it was built with this intention, this stretch of Granvia was built to be the kind of entertainment capital of Madrid, um, which today in a way it kind of still is because it's home to uh, a great many theatres including the one which I'm walking past right now, which is the Capitol, which films obviously part of the uh, Capitol building. I think the theatre was opened in 1935. Uh, it's got this lovely, uh, lovely curly neon font in blue letters, blue neon letters, Capitol. I'm being blinded by huge screens, <laughs> huge TV screens, which make, which make up the... Uh, the majority of the facade of the building now in the entrance there are people queuing and buying tickets from little glass and brass booths up the steps not sure what they've got on there's something called bailo bailo el musical which is you know i dance dance i dance i dance the musical una fantastica fiesta a ritmo de rafaella carra oh, carra looks pretty dramatic from some of the footage i can see on the screens Let's carry on heading down Granvia. So yeah, this stretch of Granvia really uh, is home to a lot of uh, um, theatres. Some some bigger, some small. There's a lovely little uh, comedy theatre as well for live stand-up comedy, which I've been to a few times. I can't remember the name. I will have a look and I'll call it out when I walk past it. Urban Outfitters. KFC fried chicken, or California burgers. You get the idea, right? Uh, there's a little comedy club, I think, over the road called Lula Club. Hot since 1982. <laughs> uh, right, another theatre over the street there, which is uh, hosting at the moment Mamma Mia, the musical Mamma Mia. I'm seeing a little lottery ticket stand. There's a guy there buying a lottery ticket. You see, there are a lot of stands down here where you can buy tickets for city tours and tour buses and lottery tickets, that kind of thing. Night time has uh, fallen on Madrid and on Gran Vía now, so it becomes a sea of lights. <laughs> and it's definitely much busier now, as you may be able to hear people emerging from just about every doorway and metro entrance <laughs> or metro exit. I'm just walking past. Hotel Emperador. The bus is just completely disregarding the fact that the light had turned red and the, the green walk signal was on. <laughs> Very common in, in Madrid that bus drivers just run the lights. I guess they've got a timetable to keep, right? <laughs> So this stretch of Gran Vera as well, I'd also say, probably less interesting architecturally, maybe. Uh, not, as, not as impressive as the first two stretches of Gran Vera um, that I've walked. We've got a La Liga football, stall, uh, football shop there. Another Starbucks. A mozzarella bar, steak burgers, McDonald's. On the other side of the street, there are a couple of kind of... <laughs> Spanish 
tapas bars kind of masquerading you know that authenticity but I don't think they really are again I'll just keep saying it I wouldn't eat anywhere on Gran Vía really Foster's Hollywood Burger Restaurant that's quite a famous Spanish chain which I think has been around since the 70s it's like uh, the Spanish take on American fast food and um, I'm just standing right outside the Teatro Lope de Vega famous for showing the musical El Rey León which of course is The Lion King which has been running for a good number of years I think since I came to Madrid so it's been getting on for 10 years I think in Madrid now The Lion King pretty expensive the uh, tickets to get a reasonable seat give you an idea I don't know how much it costs nowadays in London or New York to see The Lion King but here in Madrid an average kind of seat in the stalls is going to cost you about 150 euros something like that possibly more the other side of the street we've got a Teatro Grandia which is advertising something called Pica Pica and I think they alternate some of these theatres um, have more than one kind of um, how can I put it auditorium like the main auditorium here is uh, showing the musical Pretty Woman but the smaller downstairs auditorium I think it is in there I think it's got like a, some kind of Spanish comedy called Pica Pica got Tony Romas it's another kind of I think, I've only ever seen it in Spain so I think it is actually a Spanish chain that sells American kind of fast food style uh, fare there's a packed perfumeria pharmacy there here we go so yeah here we are down on the right hand side I, me- I mentioned uh, comedy stand up comedy and comedy clubs uh, the famous one here in the centre Madrid well there are many but one on Gran Vía is called the uh, La Chocita del Loro which I've been to a few times have uh, all sorts of different acts and different nights depending on the day of the week uh, well worth it I mean you guess you kind of have to have a fairly decent level of Spanish to, to appreciate it so I don't know if, they, if it's here they used to do there used to be some kind of stand-up night in English where English speakers who were living in Madrid used to put on stuff I don't know if they still do I'm just looking they've got all sorts of stuff going on there lots of different posters advertising different uh, comedy nights now that's called yeah La Chocita del Loro it's a nice little place it's got a bar in there and I think you can get food as well and you can sort of drink and eat while you watch your comedy I'll give a shout out to VIPs or VIP, VIPs as you probably say which is again a, a kind of very famous Spanish fast food why was it fast food? it's sit down you can get Spanish food you can get more kind of burgers and that kind of thing as well in there very famous in Spain I mean Spanish people go there it's okay it's nothing special um, but you will if you go anywhere in Spain you see beeps as they call it here or VIPs everywhere they do do a quite a good English and American style breakfast <laughs> I must say if you get a bit bored of you know pan con tomate <laughs> Burger King we are now almost crossing into Plaza de España I suppose you could call it Madrid's main square although I don't know I you know if you're going to go and see a 
sit on a square in Madrid. Don't 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 come to Plaza de España. Okay, so I'm kind of on the edge of um, Plaza de España. There's like a police car driving across the sidewalk, across the pavement. So the two notable buildings, or the noticeable buildings at least, that you'll see when you uh, cross into Plaza de España. Uh, from Gran Vía on the right hand side as you emerge out of Gran Vía into Plata de España uh, is a ginormous kind of monolithic uh, edifice from what I like to call the fuck off school of architecture <laughs> very Francoist which is now home to the uh, Rio Hotel um, and also, I think the largest Zara clothes store in, I think, in the world, certainly in Europe or Spain, I don't know. They've got the uh, Rio Hotel, Plaza Hispania. A bit about this building then. It, it's just a very imposing building, which I think it was obviously designed to be, which is a kind of combination of in a kind of red brick and then white painted plaster. And it's kind of tiered as it's not, not much relief to it, it just looks like hundreds of windows and then it starts to tear in as you get to the top and then now uh, there are kind of balustrades and uh, there's obviously a, a lit up uh, very large rooftop terrace which I haven't been up to yet, that's been open now for a couple of years um, and I understand there's a kind of glass platform you can walk out onto, in fact I'm looking at, up at it now and I can see just about people standing out you know these glass platforms that kind of jet out from the building and you can look directly down um, so that's that it's a real hotel now it's also got lots i think apartments in there a uh, number of shops and bars and restaurants it's kind of like, i think it's got a kind of some kind of uh, shopping mall in there as well now but in terms of the history of the building uh, it opened in 1953 and when it opened in 1953 it was the tallest building in madrid and it was designed to be really a symbol of, of prosperity during uh, Franco's regime. It was designed by two brothers, Julian and Jose Maria Otamendi. And it's described as being designed in the, what do they call it, neo-baroque style. Uh, it's 384 feet tall. And when it originally opened, it contained a 360-room hotel. Uh, 300 offices and uh, 184 apartments and a shopping centre. It gives you the idea, if you haven't seen it, of the scale of the building. It's, 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 it's a giant monolithic block, basically. Um, but apparently just four years after completion, it was then uh, overtaken as the tallest building in Madrid by the Torre de Madrid, which is just adjacent to it, diagonally across. Again, it's a kind of uh, a building that you can't miss as you walk down Gran Vía. So kind of uh, like a, it looks like it might have been built out of marble. It's got a kind of white cream uh, colour to it, and it just overtook the Edificio de España, measuring in at 466 feet uh, with its 36 stories when it was completed just a few years later. I think uh, most of the, I think part of the uh, Torre Madrid is made up of a hotel. But I think uh, at the higher levels, they are private apartments. And I can imagine, uh, looking up, you can see a lot of balconies. Uh, there's a few lights on. And I can imagine these are very exclusive apartments. Probably some of the most expensive.
apartments uh, you could uh, buy in the centre of Madrid. And apparently the uh, Torre Madrid uh, was the highest office building in Europe until 1967. And one other little factet about it, uh, <laughs> when the tower opened in uh, 1957, uh, it was equipped with some of the fastest elevators of the time, uh, permitting users to travel at 3.5 metres per second. Um, I don't know these days what, how fast elevators uh, travel at. So you walk into the Plata de España out of Gran Vía and you are hit by these two striking uh, monolithic structures. I mean, I'm not a big fan of them particularly. They're, they're very Madrid, very iconic. They're not particularly, I wouldn't say they're beautiful by any means, but there you go. I think the best thing about the Rio Hotel Edificio de España would be to go up and go up to that viewing platform because I have friends who've done it and they say you do get um, absolutely fantastic views across Madrid. On that note, a little tip, if you want to get a good, uh, a good viewpoint to see across central Madrid from Gran Vía is to head into the El Corte Inglés department store which you'll see on the uh, Callao Square which I passed through a little bit earlier and head up to the very top floor I think it's like the sixth or seventh floor of the department store and there's like a kind of what's billed as a gourmet eating experience kind of food court which, you know, you can go and have a coffee or a beer. It's a bit overpriced. Again, it's kind of targeting tourists. But once you get up there, you can uh, go out onto a terraza, onto a terrace, completely free. No one will stop you. No one will say anything. And you can go and get some great views across central Madrid. Another thing's worth mentioning, and I'm not an expert on this, there are a number of rooftop uh, bars on the numerous hotels that uh, are a little bit expensive, but worth checking out. What's this? Now you can probably hear, as I've been trying to get through what I wanted to say, there's some kind of uh, manifestation going on over the road. They're gonna walk right past me now. Let's see what they're saying. It says something about traitors, public, various causes. Something about public health system is at its limit. Something about being proud of their... Okay, this is kind of like a universal slating of all political parties. Various causes being represented. Not a very big crowd, probably a couple of dozen people there. Something to do with farmers and the countryside. I don't want to die without meeting my idols, um, one of the banners says. Bit bizarre. I'm not quite sure exactly what they're trying to say <laughs> there but there you go so i just walked into the center of plaza de España now now this was closed again for about two and a half years to be remodeled and i have to say when i first came to madrid plaza de España was just like a no-go area not because it was dangerous just because it was ugly um there was nothing here it was surrounded on all sides by really busy traffic choked streets really difficult just to get across into the centre of the square and then when you did there really wasn't much here anyway apart from a few benches and overgrown plants and litter. I came a few times when they staged a few outdoor concerts here um, but anyway it reopened I think in 2021 after an extensive closure and remodelling and I've got to say a lot of people criticised it and said oh it's too much concrete and what a waste of money 
Um, but I've got to say, what they've done is much better because they've buried a couple of these streets under tunnels. It's much more accessible now. Um, and uh, they've planted, I think, something like a thousand trees. And the whole idea is that this, this space now part, forms part of like a kind of green corridor which connects Plaza de España all the way up to the Royal Palace, which I can just see the side of lit up in the distance there. I suppose the most notable thing about the Plata de España is the monument which is in the middle, which is a kind of half monument, half fountain. 22 metres high and it's the Monumento a Cervantes, of course. So this was inaugurated in 1929 and you get the idea that much of this area, the architecture, the buildings, all kind of from the you know, mid-1920s up to the early 1930s. So it's this kind of thick obelisk yeah, on a kind of granite platform there's a part of it which is like a fountain which is actually turned off now and it's crowned by a, a group of five uh, figures alluding to the different parts of the world um, around a large sphere that represents it there's a, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a large ball at the top of the obelisk and then in front of it is the, uh, the seated statue of Miguel de Cervantes and lo and behold, on uh, horseback, lit up, we see, we see Miguel de Cervantes sitting, clutching a, a hefty tome with his frilly collar beard, and then set before him in this, this, this garden on horseback, well, who else other than... Don Quixote and his sidekick Sancho and Don Quixote is holding aloft a, a kind of spear raising one hand up in the air and there is his chubby sidekick Sancho with his belly and it looks like he's sat more like on I think a donkey the donkey looks doesn't look too happy taking the strain of his weight so there we go um, the landscaping, is, yeah, they've done a pretty good job and your walk through connects you up to the Debod Temple, the Temple de Debod, uh, up on the hill over there, which I'm not going to go to now because it doesn't really count as the final stop. I wanted to stop here, but this whole area now is much better organised, so if you want to visit the Plaza de España, the Palacio Real, the Plaza Oriente, which is very beautiful, and also the Templo de Debod, the Debod Temple. You can do that now. Uh, it's all connected through pedestrianised uh, pedestrian walkways, and uh, it's much greener and a much more uh, much more pleasant uh, space than it used to be, um, you know, a few years ago. Just a couple of other points while I'm on the square. I'm just very glad that the rain didn't reappear again. As you walk across the square on the right-hand side, it's actually on the corner of Calle Ferraz and the uh, Plaza de España. Worth mentioning a really fine example of uh, modernist architecture in Madrid, and it's called the Casa Gallardo. Um, and it's considered one of the key works of uh, the last stage of the Madrid modernist architecture. I think it really stands out because of its very curvy facade and uh, kind of I don't know, numerous uh, decorative elements which give it a real kind of uh, sculptural quality. 
And then the other final uh, point of interest is the Edificio de la Real Compañía Asturiana de Minas. The Royal Asturian Mining Company, as it was once uh, the headquarters, looks a bit like a kind of castle. Now, the architect of the building was Manuel Martinez Ángel, and he was also the director of the company. Um, he was actually murdered by a student who failed the municipal architect exams. So with that violent end, I will bring this episode of the When in Spain podcast to a close as I gaze across now the, to the, uh, through the trees of the uh, Rio Hotel with its red neon lights and what looks like a very cosy terraza up there. I can see a few people milling around. Uh, I don't think there'll be any al fresco dining going on this evening. Um, but thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me. Uh, what I would suggest doing uh, is maybe heading on to Google Maps, listen to the podcast, and follow along on Google Street View so you can see uh, exactly uh, what I'm uh, talking about. To the long-term and regular listeners to this podcast, uh, I'd just like to say apologies for not bringing, uh, bringing out a new episode uh, <laughs> for a very long time, as uh, those of you who have listened for a long time and who know me uh, know that I became a dad uh, back in uh, May last year, and so obviously a uh, little uh, baby Maximo is now just turned nine months old which is keeping me and my wife Karina very busy um, but very happy of course and I think just you know juggling that with full-time jobs uh, it has meant that the podcast has had to take a bit of a backseat for a while but what I really do hope to do uh, is to bring a, a new episode out when I have the opportunity like uh, like I did today and uh, really try and look at how I can start bringing uh, uh, new episodes to you guys on a more regular basis. So as I walk under the gaze of Miguel de Cervantes, I will bid you all a good evening from a chilly and slightly drizzly Madrid. And I look forward to bringing you all a new episode of When in Spain very, very soon. <laughs>